I'm super happy. Are you happy? Welcome to the BU Find Happy Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tricks to inspire you on your way to happiness, to live a courageous life of authenticity, and learn how to speak your truth with grace. I'm Michaela Johnson, and welcome to our podcast. Good morning, Will. Welcome to this podcast. Oh my goodness. I know that we have been talking and planning this for quite a few months and I've continued to love watching your Instagram stories and your posts and just kind of everything that you have going on. I'm really excited to talk about stuff because I have been taking notes uh, like feverishly. And uh, yeah, so if you could share with the listeners a little bit about what you do and how you got started um, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into these awesome topics. Cool. Uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this as well. You, you have a pretty busy schedule, so that's always a sign of a successful podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so I, I host the Renaissance of Men podcast, uh, which I've been doing for a couple years now. And uh, the Renaissance of Men is a 40-year process to rebirth and redeem masculinity. It started in the 1980s, so obviously I didn't start the Renaissance of Men in that sense. I just observed it and I gave it a name. And so now I interview thought leaders, both men and women, uh, that are working towards this renaissance and and what I call the great reconciliation of the sexes after um, decades of division. I'm also a mentor for men, which you can learn more about by visiting renofmen.com slash mentorship. And I create content on both Instagram and Twitter at renofmen and also on YouTube as well. Awesome. And, you know, we're, we're going to get this podcast out before your February 27th seminar, because oh, nice. I have a lot of personal thoughts about that, that we'll talk about today. And Sweet. so just a little backstory for me, I grew up with very masculine men, country boys, um, chainsaws and, and hammers <laughs> and the whole thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people on this podcast know that my family actually grew up in a 27 foot fifth wheel in desolation wilderness. Um, we built our home with cash and uh, blood, sweat, and tears. So I have very, uh, you know, very big life experiences in the world of masculinity. Um, you know, I currently, my partner and I have four boys and we have a lot of beliefs about how they need to be raised as boys to be men, um, masculine. So, uh, let's get started by talking a little bit about the whole toxic masculinity movement. Mm. And actually one of the reasons I was a couple minutes late is cause I was chatting with my mom this morning, telling her that you and I were going to be visiting. And she's like, this blah, 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 blah. I mean, she had so much to say about toxic masculinity. I'm like, Great. okay, mom. Like, she's like, you tell him your mother said, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did she say? <laughs> oh my gosh. She just, she, you know, she has a lot of similar beliefs that this whole abolishment of masculinity has to do with um, just the total devolving of our species and breaking us down um, for ultimately a, you know, China takeover. <laughs> wow. Your mom sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so share with, share with the listeners a little bit about toxic masculinity from, you know, your perspective and experience and what you're working on. Oh man, I'm so glad you asked. So toxic masculinity is, it's a really complicated, um, it's a really complicated term. So, um, so feminist literature has, uh, existed long before the 1960s. 
Uh, it actually began sometime in the late um, the late nineteenth century, so the eighteen hundreds. And the word toxic, the phrase toxic masculinity itself, is actually you can think about feminist literature started in the in the eight in the nineteenth um, century, eighteen hundreds, as like they had these rocks, like these big boulders that they kind of threw at men, right? But then in the universities and in political activism groups over the course of say 150 years, those boulders have been refined down into smaller little stones, into arrowheads, and then refined into metal, and then turned into bullets. And then those bullets have been launched through the public dialogue directly into men's hearts. So what toxic masculinity, the phrase is, it's a, it's a refinement of 150 years of feminist literature, give or take, that's been launched through the public social media dialogue that is specifically designed to land in men's hearts and shut them down through shame. So when you, yeah. when you see the word toxic masculinity, what you're looking at is what I call a shaming weapon. It's, it's a weapon that's targeted specifically at men because when you launch it at a, at a man, he's unprepared. He doesn't know how to defend it. Now, there are lots of ways to defend against it, but that's what that is. It's it's uh, linguistic warfare against men. So, I, I completely um, concur. And I will add that, you know, the way that it's got, you know, the double speak comes so much into play here because the way that they'll twist it and use it is it'll be like, oh, you know, a narcissist or a man who's, you know, being abusive to his spouse or this or this, like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a man who is turning his inward anger onto, uh, you know, someone, a, a lesser person. And I say lesser person because I am a firm believer that God created women to have intuition and not brute strength. And so in mm -hmm. that way, yeah. we are, we are lesser in that way and, and, and more in other ways. That's how we exist, coexist beautifully together. We need each other. And I think that where, where this has gotten so squirrely is that they use the term toxic masculinity and then show it side by side with someone who's beating their wife. That's not what we're talking about here. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like what you said that women have feelings and intuition. It's, it, it gets down to the issue that men and women meet the world in different ways. Men uh, are meant to meet the world with their rational minds and their physical strength. And women are meant to meet the world with their feelings and, and their emotions and intuition. Feelings and emotions and intuition are not the same. So this is the different ways that men and women, women process reality. Now, that doesn't mean that men don't have feelings and that women don't have rationality. It's our primary way of engaging with the world. So toxic masculinity as a phrase, it's not designed to have that kind of nuance. Like, no, we're only talking about this kind of man. What it actually means, the way that it actually lands is, uh, and I'm glad that you said it's linguist, it, it's a kind of doublespeak. The way that it actually lands is to say masculinity is toxic, right? right? That's, that's how it lands and that's how it's designed to land. Now, before we spiral off the topic, what I say in response to the phrase toxic masculinity is there's actually two kinds of toxic masculinity. On one side, you do have, you know, the machismo, wife-beating, aggressive, brittle, brittle kind of guy, right? That is, mm -hmm. I mean, I think you can definitely say. But on the other side of that, you have men that are weak and passive and just let, let life kind of uh, pass by and don't really step into any kind of initiative or taking action. That is another kind of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Because what one, what one of the guys does is he takes up all the space in the room. You know, he mm. walks in, he's like, here I am, right? And, and it's like, dude, who are you? Calm down. But on the <laughs> other side, 
you have men who drain all the vitality from the world around them because they're just kind of like empty, empty holes. And what, yeah. and what the phrase toxic masculinity is, is designed to do is to take that man who maybe takes up too much space, but at least he has presence, is to pierce him so the energy drains out of him and then turns him into the other kind of man. So it's meant to drive one man into the ditch of passivity. So both of those are the ditches on either side of the road. Both of those are toxic. And so true masculinity goes right down the middle between both of them and says, I'm not going to fall into the false dialectic that I have to be a super strong macho alpha dude or that I have to be a super weak. I don't like the term beta because it's it's it doesn't have enough nuance, but a super weak kind of man. And this is the thing that I tell women. Is this not the majority of men that you've seen throughout your whole life, right? Isn't this women's story and most of them dating through their 20s? They go and they date the bad boy and the bad boy is not great to be in a relationship. So then they date the nice guy and then the nice guy is not great to be, to be in a relationship. And they bounce back and forth between those two guys. And they're like, if this is all men are, men are shit. Yeah. Right. And so- I, I love what you're saying. I totally resonate with it. And my current partner is walking straight in the middle. And you know, what's right. funny is I love to push his buttons. <laughs> of course, sure. that's what men do. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the most impressive things, though, is that at the end of the day, if I come to him with something and say, I feel this in my whole being, I feel this in my whole self, like my gut is screaming at me. He will literally drop everything. He he will literally say, your gut is not usually wrong. I mean, it, mm. and and he recognizes this space that I bring, you know, in that way. And and there are times where um he will push back on me. And I and I appreciate that. So I love that he can be um he can be very he can be very both sides of the spectrum gracefully when needed. You know what I mean? Sure. He can he can kind of take that step back role and let me shine. And he can also take that step forward role and protect. And I think that, I think that that is a really impressive thing. And, you know, I've been through my fair share of all, usually on the uh, machismo side of things yeah, of course. for most of my life. And so to find, to find synergy and balance, I think just really has allowed me to be more feminine above anything else. I no longer feel like I have to be uber masculine or that I have to be uber broken, right? Like I can, yeah. I can be, I can cry. I've never cried as much in my life as I have being with him. And it's beautiful. Like, it, you know, it's wonderful. You feel, you feel he's not making you cry. You're, you're allowing yourself to feel deeply, I think is what you mean, right? That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I, right, right. No, he's I've never not cried so cry. much. <laughs> I know. That sounds okay. terrible. Thank you for catching that. All the listeners <laughs> like, what do you mean? No, no. Uh, no, I feel uh, so many emotions that I'm allowed to feel and process and And, oh gosh, it's been amazing and I love it. So I think that the work that you're doing in this way of bringing back um, balance to that spectrum is really incredible. And I think that, you know, a lot of the reason that we see nuclear families failing and things like that is because men don't know their place now in this family system. And, and then what I see in my practice, what I do in couples work is uh, I'm a psychotherapist. I see that then the man becomes withdrawn and then turns to porn. I mean, it's this whole mm-hmm. cycle. I, I mean, I can literally, I could draw a picture and present it to people and they go, yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're unfortunately, and I'm, I'm grateful. It sounds like you're bucking the trend is that 
your profession is actually partially responsible for the state that men men are in because you know the American uh, uh, American Psychological Association essentially bought into all the, the worst aspects of the phrase toxic masculinity and is now trying to beat men into submission that they should be more like women by calling you know stoicism and things like that toxic. It's like no, that's how we built civilization. Like you're welcome, right? You're and, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and you're you know, absolutely right. And I think I think one of the things before you, you continue there is that uh, there are a lot of therapists that at least myself, I've been doing this for 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, the better half of the last, ele- or, you know, 11 of those years, I was afraid to speak out because I would be oh. so shamed by my peers and my colleagues that, you know, you are so ignorant or you are so naive or you are so racist or you are so, you know, gender bias or you are all the things, you know, and it's like, they've done such a good job at literally um, shaming us into submission to the point where it's like, okay, I'm just going to be this kind of lukewarm, you know, vanilla therapist, even though I know exactly what's happening here. I can see this so clearly. I'm not going to speak out because, and then they created the BBS creates all these rules and violations to make sure you stay in your place. I mm-hmm. see more and more now recently, therapists are coming out, the truthful therapists, the uncensored therapists, they're coming out and they're saying, no, I'm no longer going to be bound and bondaged and silenced. Um, it, I have a place here too. And I like yeah. that. Yeah. I actually was going to be a psychotherapist. So I was living overseas in uh, 2020. I was living in New Zealand. I moved back uh, to the United States in February 2020 before COVID became a thing. So 2019, 2020, I moved back and I was I was I wanted to go to school to be a psychotherapist. It had been something that I wanted to do for a few years. But then, you know, the world got locked down. And as I saw sort of the crisis that was happening in masculinity, which, you know, I had I had, um, you know, through my own through my own research and my own study and my own travel and my own efforts sort of lifted myself out of. I looked around and I said, why would I go to school in a in a captured institution? Right. For three to five years to uh, to get certified to solve a problem that doesn't actually require for the majority of men, it doesn't actually require a therapist. Most mm-hmm. what I so what I say is that most men don't need psychotherapy; they need masculinity. And what I say about my mentorship is that uh, the world says masculinity is toxic. Everything the world says is backwards. That means masculinity is medicine, and you can't get masculinity from a therapist's couch. You get masculinity from showing up, from efficacy in the world, from disciplined pursuit and effort. Yes, of course, naturally that there are men with very serious challenges with depression and anxiety. Absolutely. And I don't want to pretend like that isn't the thing. But I think what most men are really, really looking for, and I do mean most, is a sense that they have presence and identity and that their work matters and that they can produce something good and that they have brotherhood. And that is not where you're going to get on a therapist's couch. And I know that because I had my own life changed by therapy, right? And what I, what I finally was able to do was actually get out and live. And I learned as much from getting out and living as I did on the therapist's couch. And I think that most men, they're not looking, they're not looking for that first and foremost, right? I think they're looking uh, for much more. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I've never worked with the individual men population for a numerous, uh, you know, for numerous reasons, myriad reasons. But my partner who's been on this podcast before has often shared that, you know, he was with two, you know, various women, two women prior. And each one of them was like, you need therapy. You need to go fix yourself. You're not fitting into my mold. And he said, you know, he spent countless hours (laughs) in these therapy sessions trying to fix himself, come to find out 
you know, no, he's just with the wrong women who are trying to keep him small and very feminist women who were trying to, you know, mold him. As a matter of fact, one of them sent his three-year-old home with toenail polish on the other day about lost my shit. But, mm. um, you know, it's like, so to, to the point of this, you're exactly right. And I think that, I think that therapy can be so useful, um, but it needs to be completely revamped. And the way that we're approaching this and the way that we're doing this, I, I think there's a lot of value to being able to talk with someone confidentially and non-judgmentally. I feel that's removed from your situation. I feel like there is a lot of value to that. And that's, that's how I try to approach counseling mm -hmm. now as is from that perspective, you know, and I will outrightly tell people, if people call me and say, I've been diagnosed with this and this and this, and um, I want to know what kind of treatment modalities you do. I'm like, hey, I'm probably not the therapist for you. I'll be honest, because I don't subscribe to all of that. Yeah. I don't put people into a mold of you've been diagnosed with this. Therefore, we do this. I want to meet you. I want to work with you. I want to know your story. And I want to offer you insights and looking at things in a different way. That's what I'm here to do. And, you know, if you're wanting a, a DSM diagnosis to build your insurance and, a, you know, check list of things that the California State Board of Behavioral Sciences, who does not know you from Adam, yeah. says is going to fix you, then you're not the client for me. I, I completely I completely agree. Um, and the way that I approach my men's mentorship is exactly like that. You know, it's it's a chance to speak confidential confidentially about things that are going on. Obviously, I'm not going to you know offer DSM diagnoses, but again, I don't think that's what men need. And I also host men's groups, and I think that's another aspect that gets overlooked is that you know men aren't meant to be these solo lone wolf kind of creatures. You know, like a lone wolf dies, right? Men are meant to function collectively in hierarchy and teams. That's why I don't like the term the terms alpha and beta is that they're they're infused with this kind of value judgment, right? Like this idea that, oh, I'm alpha and that makes me better than you. It's like some men literally just want to belong. Like on the football field, like the Super Bowl was last night, like all those guys on the field can't all walk around and think that they're alpha, right? That's not how that works. Like there's You're a guy right. who's, in, who's in charge and this notion of alpha and beta and every man needs to be alpha. It's like, no, that's not how teams, that's not how teams work. So men- no, and the guy yeah. that's squeezing the water into the football player's mouth is no less than the football player. That's right. That's right. But I mean, you know, even even on offense, you have the quarterback. The quarterback is in charge and the, and the coach is in charge. And if all those guys are walking around thinking like I'm king alpha of everything, trying to behave that way, they'll never be able to function as a team. And I think men are built and designed and love to function in teams. And part of the part of the challenge with psychotherapy is that it for men it's a it's a various it's a solo pursuit it's him alone in a room with another man or him alone with his own feelings when in reality men are able to group process men throughout history and time have gone into the forest to perform rituals of initiation and those are private and in many cases secret and it's in those environments that men are able to let out their inner realities in a way that isn't recorded and, and that is shared and known. And all the guys can look at each other and say, yeah, that's my life too. And they go do what they got to do, you know, whether it's scream or cry or punch a tree or whatever it is. And then, and then they put themselves back together and they go back into the world. And that is how men traditionally process things. I think the notion of sitting on a couch and opening up your feelings, while it can be very productive, and I'm an example of that because I was in therapy for a couple of years and I did sufficiently rewire myself. But what I found happened is when I actually started to get out in the in the world and start to recognize like, okay, now I want to grow in my actual masculinity and be a leader in a household and all that stuff, 
my therapist who I continued having, and I love the guy, so I don't, I don't mean for this to sound bad, but he started being very challenged with my notions of like, yeah, now I'm a man and I want to lead a home. And he, to his credit, like he was, he tried to follow me, but I could tell that I was breaking his model with how men were supposed to be, that it was one thing to work out my inner reality. But once I started to want to lead as a man in my outer reality, that's when he couldn't go with me any further. To be fair, he, he did try to, he did try to support me in that, but I could tell that I was challenging his paradigm. And so the thing is, is you kind of need both. But I think for many men today, because we have this breakdown of the family, because we have this breakdown of society, because we have men who don't know what they are, they don't know what they're for, they need to get out and do first and foremost together. And in the process of doing, that's when we connect. In the process of connecting, that's when we share. And that's when we process through things. So in private, you know, with an individual, though that has place as well. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that it doesn't, but I, I think men need each other in community first. And if I could add one more thing, men being together in community without women is not allowed anymore. That specific thing is forbidden. You don't have men only clubs, men over only societies. You have, especially in the NFL, you see all these ads with women wearing football jerseys and women on the field. And they tried to have a woman college football player. Like we need to insert women into every space that men are. In fact, at the intro of the Super Bowl, they had four jet fighters fly over. They were all piloted by women. There's a consistent effort to bring women into every sphere where men are to make sure that men are never alone in community together. This is concerted. So, it's been going on for a long time and it weakens men. I'm glad you brought up the fighter pilots because I did. So I'm a pilot and I did post this on my social. And, you know, I was like, this is this is pretty badassery that these chicks are doing this. And somebody had commented back and I, you know, I replied to them with a voice memo and I said, However, you know, as much as I think this is cool, I also think that that, you know, it's it's excessive to to do it as all women. I think men and women are, you know, needed in in these spaces if if they want to be in this way and that it doesn't have to swing. The pendulum doesn't have to swing so far the other way, you know, and and so I find this interesting. I, for one, would never want to go to combat. It's not my thing. Um, women shouldn't go to combat. Flying? Yes, I love flying and I'm glad that I'm able to get to fly in this day and age, you know, Amelia Earhart style, but I don't have any desire to go to combat. I don't think that's great. And, you know, at the end of the day, my partner is a 36,000 hour pilot. And when we get in an airplane together, I rarely get in the pilot seat. I get in the co-pilot seat and people have often asked me, well, why are you always, you know, flying in the right seat versus the left seat? And I say, because I'm just fine with that. I'm just yeah. fine with that. And and I know it's perplexing to some people. I mean, there are times where I want to be in the left seat for various reasons. But for the most part, um, you know, it it's not necessary to one up or anything like that. Not even close. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you that you're flying an airplane, like go for it. Right. But the notion that women should be in in, in combat roles, that women should be flying Jets alongside men, I, I just think that dishonors women. I think it's a, I think it's propaganda that's attempting to continually push the idea that men and women are equal and interchangeable, and they're absolutely not. And that's just common sense. It was common sense for thousands of years. Men and women had separate, equally important roles. But one of the things that's happened over the past hundred or so years is we don't understand what a home is anymore. A home is not a house. A home is a place where values and love and morality is instilled and taught. 
and uh, lessons over the generations are passed down. We don't have that anymore. We have school. We have institutionalized government schools where the new values are passed down, and we can see that. And so when, when school takes over the handling of values, the home loses all of its import. And so if the home loses all its import, women are like, well, maybe I'll go out into the workforce. And so you have this idea that women and men belong in the workforce together. They absolutely do not. They absolutely do not. And I'm going to go – I can go hard on that. But I, I think men and women being in the corporate workforce together dishonors men and dishonors women. In fact, I think the, the center of economic production should be the home where the values of masculinity are passed on from father to son and father to daughter of hard work, discipline, and building a business. And the mother can be there with the father helping to build the business and children can see a healthy family. When you take mothers and fathers and you take them out of the home and you send children off to government schools, you have the atomization of the family and you have the fracturing of American society that built all of our prosperity. And now here we are, right? Yep. And so there's this notion that we all have to be off doing this corporatized, individualized thing. I think it's ultimately destructive because we no longer know what a home is for. And as women begin to discover, I actually want to be home, they're beginning to rediscover all of this. And I think men are rediscovering it too. post and you said um if being a sex worker is a valid incredible job then so is being a homemaker yeah. wife and mother and i loved that because i think that's true it's like hey if you want to go claim you know that you get street cred well then so does this job that that doesn't get paid but still has great value and worth and and kind of switching over to that one of the things that you touched on that i'm really curious about and i do want to pull this back to the new age at the end is mm. um you you've recently posted qu quite a few things on obesity and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I really yeah. wanted to better understand your thoughts on that and have a conversation about that. Because one of the things that I see um, a lot in my work with individual women, and I do work mostly with couples, is that I will have, you know, women and, and even men say, well, you know, she's gained a lot of weight, or he's gained a lot of weight, and I'm not as attracted, or, you know, I feel yep. like they're kind of being lazy. And there's yep. the shame and guilt as they say this. And I, and I had this conversation with my partner the other day. And I said, you know, how do you feel about this? Because I have these mixed feelings on one hand, I feel like, um, you know, we should love and ex ex accept our partner as they are. But on the other hand, you know, if somebody is not taking care of their human vessel, their God-given creation, yeah. um, then why wouldn't you look kind of downly upon that? I mean, I hate to say this and not sounding judgmental, but, you know, if somebody is letting their car go to absolute crap and it's got door dings all over it and the windows cracked in half and they've never done an oil change and it's got smoke billowing out the back, I'm going to look at that car and I'm going to say, wow, that's a piece of shit. They haven't taken yeah. care of that. Same thing with a house, right? Same thing with anything that we're supposed to have pride of ownership. Why is it with our human bodies we don't have those same thoughts and feelings. Why would I want to be with someone who does not care enough about themselves to take care of themselves and be healthy, sound mind and body? I don't get it. You know, I don't right. understand. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't know where you'd like me to jump in on that because there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different places. So if you could help guide me for, you know, what you would, for your listeners, what would be the best doorway in to, to cover that? Because I think you're spot on with a lot of it. 
Well, I mean, I'm really curious in what ways do you see that this is kind of contributing to the failure of marriages or maybe people lusting after other people? In what ways do you think that we have a personal responsibility to ourselves, to our partner, you know, that kind of thing? Okay. So, um, so, uh, you said God given, so I'm going to presume that we share at least some Christian values, right? Did I, did I, am I correct in, in, in that? Uh, and, and so listeners on this podcast known, I have left the new age, um, running, oh, praise God. crying humbly on my knees, repenting, and I have been in the presence of Jesus every day since. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, the reason the reason why I say that is that the message of feminism for the past 150 years uh, has taught women to say, you can't tell me nothing. So if I want to kill my baby, I can kill my baby and you can't tell me nothing. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, and part of that regards um, women and their relationship to their bodies. So this this idea of feminism is so and I'm going to do a series of posts about this. This idea of feminism is what it's designed to do is it's first designed to um, build walls between women and their outer environment, particularly men. And that wall is called self-esteem. And it's also designed to shame men so that they can't actually say anything about that. You can't tell me nothing. And then what feminism does is it gets into the women's psyche and causes her to destroy herself. So you see this if you look at a lot of liberal progressive women. They're obese. They have blue hair, tattoos, et cetera. That is a woman in open rebellion to her femininity, literally destroying herself so that she will not be attractive to men because she's striking against the patriarchy using her body as the battlefield, right? So so what obesity is is uh, the corruption of modernity getting into men and women's bodies, causing them to self-destruct. Right. And that blows up everyone around them. And we can't say anything about it because you can't tell me nothing. Right. Okay. Now, what Christianity says is that, as a matter of fact, uh, I can tell you something because I'm God and I'm also and Jesus Christ as well. And God and Jesus Christ, um, through Christ or however you want, like we'll just say in the Bible, is very clear about the relationship of the sexes to each other. Right. And to God. So um, the man submits to Christ, the woman submits to the man, the children submits to the woman. And uh, and they all have roles and responsibilities up that chain. One of the roles and responsibilities up that chain is to be fit for service as a partner to each other. Right. So this and this is what the post series is about. This applies equally to men and women is that I say is that sexually desirable is sexually available. And so a man is has to be in a position where he can be respected by his wife. That is his responsibility. That is in his um, in his approach to finances and professionalism, in his fitness, in his body, and his conduct as a man. Right? That is him in submission to Christ. He has to do what Christ is telling him to do. In the same sense, the woman is in submission to the man. And sex is such a fundamental, important part of men and how they relate to women. It's built into our bodies. And our instincts and everything in a way that I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that women can fully understand, but I'm not a woman, so I'm not going to go there. But it's necessary for a man in order to have libido, life force energy to go out and win and conquer to be able to express that life force energy through sex. And if his wife is not there being sexually desirable for him, his desire and drive for him to go out and win and conquer on behalf of the family will be cut off at the knees. And women think that this is okay to do. Why? 
because you can't tell me nothing. You, my body, my choice. I can eat whatever I want. I can blow up. I can whatever. And that is abandoning her husband. And because men can't say anything in response to it, men are like, okay, I give up. Because we're other, or they're going to go have affairs or whatever. Now it works the other way too. Like if a woman's taking care of herself and her husband doesn't, it works the other way too. It's also him, him being irresponsible. So this is equality. But the notion of, of married couples having a healthy, fulfilling, vibrant sex life, that is God's gift. I've all, I've heard sex described as God's wedding gift to men and women. I think that's a great way of putting it. But obesity causes us to not be able to honor that wedding gift. And because we can't speak about it publicly, it's allowed to literally grow and before our eyes. And so I got really fed up with that because I regard obesity, whether it's a man or a woman, as abandoning your partner, one of the many ways we abandon each other. And I'm like, you know what? If you go to Thailand or if you go to India or if you go to other countries around the world, because I've, I've been to uh, 33, 34 countries around the world, you know, they don't have the same cultural taboo talking about weight. They'll be very open about it. Like, oh, like if, you've, uh, if you know any children of immigrant parents, they'll just say like, oh, you look like you've put on weight and it's the most shocking thing. So this, this prohibition against speaking about weight is, is exclusive only to America, which means it's arbitrary. And if it's arbitrary, then I'm not violating any moral laws speaking about it. So I decided that I was going to speak about it because no one else was willing to. And I've been very, very happy with the reception that it's uh, – the reception that these posts have made specifically because they're designed to hold both men and women accountable to God's standard. I'm not saying you have to be accountable to my standard or the National Institute of Health standards. I'm saying you're accountable to God's standard as your expected duties and covenantal marriage. And so that's why those series of posts are written to Christians, because Christians have a standard that they've ascribed to, they've willingly chosen. And I don't think saying like gluttony is not that big of a deal. I think gluttony is a big deal. I think sloth is a big deal. And so now there's this con conversation that's just starting to form around this. And it's going to be really uncomfortable, but like, I don't know, welcome to earth. <laughs> Gosh, that is so fascinating. Totally, totally get it. Totally hear you. Totally concur. Um, and I do think that, you know, we in America have a very America mindset, very narcissistic mindset in that way. I've also been to many countries. Matter of fact, I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Crouch. He does six foot seven podcast. It's really fascinating. And we talked about that, that same thing that, you know, we get stuck in like that we're the center of the planet and we're not necessarily doing things well. And then, you know, to kind of rabbit hole further on that, mm -hmm. I think this is part of the whole global elites plan with, you know, there being a fast food joint on literally every corner. Yeah. To weaken what was, you know, a, a very strong Christian nation um, built, you know, in God we trust. And so I think that you bring up a very good point. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how on the daily, I think my partner and I say, I love your body to one another. Um, and I, Amazing. and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, like I'm obsessed, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's a bad <laughs> thing, you know? No. And, um, and what's interesting about that is when he says that, I feel inspired. I feel motivated. I feel pretty. I feel like I don't need to worry about other women. I feel like I don't need to worry about pornography. I feel like there's a, there's a, you know, there's a mutual, a mutual respect, a mutual adoration. And, um, 
and it's very empowering and, um, you know, and we have very open dialogue about like, Hey, if this is ever feeling stale or if this is ever feeling, you know, whatever, we, we are not afraid to talk about it at all. We've done a lot of together reading, um, about sex in the Bible, actually, believe it or not, because, um, you know, one, we're not married. So there's some, I have some feelings and thoughts there about that, that I'm kind of working through. Um, because, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that the way we see marriage today is very much a government contract of finances. And, yes. you know, I'm not looking to have that. I'm looking to have a covenant in my relationship um, with my partner and God. And I think that's something that I've been kind of diving into. But what's really nice is that if I, if I text him and say, I feel fat, want to hike today, he's like, see you at three at the trailhead. Awesome. You know, like, I mean, it's like we have this effort together. And and one of the things that we both often talk about is like, if my clothes start not feeling right, or I start feeling like I'm out of breath doing something, it's time to immediately make a change. You know, that's not yeah. something I can let go on because I need to be in physic- physically fit condition. I do. It's very important to me. And that's not saying I'm going to pump an iron at the gym, right? Like I'm a carry a bag of chicken feed kind of person, but, <laughs> but it's still, you know, moving my my body is really, really, really important to me. And I think it's important to have a partner that aligns with that. I agree. I agree. And, and, and you introduced a really important distinction, which is, um, you feel personally accountable for your own body because of the way that you want to feel in your body. Like you do it for you. Right. And that's really, really important. And the reason why I wrote the series of posts that I did is, is to say, look, if you reader of the post don't feel accountable for doing this inside your own body because you just don't feel like it or whatever, if you don't already have this built in, I really hate to tell you, but you are still responsible for it. Just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean we don't have to do it. That's, oh, I mean, that, I love that's that. literally, yeah. And yeah. I tell and that's what I, this all the time. They say, I don't want to, I said, I don't care. Welcome exactly. to the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the, that's the thing in our soft and comfortable world. We think of like, if I don't want to do it, I don't have to do it. It's like, uh, uh-uh. reality is non-negotiable. And you know, that's why, that's why there's this pressure to make everything relative. Oh, it's, it's all just relative. There's no absolute standard. That's why the big, that's why the big push against Christianity because, because Christianity says very clearly that there are absolute immutable standards enforced by God himself. And that makes us really uncomfortable because we don't want to be accountable to absolute standards. You know, we don't want to know that, you know, these standards are, they're active from the moment we're born until the moment we die and always have been in all of time. That's real. That's a really scary thought. First of all, it's also really uncomfortable. Second of all, but only if you live outside them, because once you come into alignment with God and the standards as much as we can as fallen sinful beings, when you come into alignment with them, it's completely freeing, right? And so that's the thing that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, and and to your point, I think that, you know, I'm starting to realize, because I've started to kind of um, obviously read Bible, Bible scripture in a different way, you know, being guided from a learning standpoint before this was like always just like some history book or something or like some like taboo, like weird thing that the Roman Catholic church, like put out to manipulate people because I came from, you know, I spent years leaving the, but anyways, the point is that now I see, no, this all plays together for what is happening now. The reason that all of this scripture was written was because of what is coming. You know, the future proves past kind of a thing here Mm -hmm. where, you know, if you're going to fall prey to this debauchery and all these things, 
things like astrology and Wicca, tarot cards, whatever, or you're, you know, and you're going to, oh, it's just my astrology reading in the Sunday newspaper. It's not, no, that's the gateway, right? That is the portal. That is the entryway to how we got where we are now. And I think uh, now I see it so differently. And this is probably a good segue into the new age. So as a fellow person who has left the new age, um, Mm. do you want to share some, some thoughts on that and, and your seminar that you've got coming up? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I spent 20 or so years in the new age. And, um, again, that was a big part of my travels. I've done, you know, 15 ayahuasca ceremonies in the United States and Peru, um, two Bufal Varias DMT ceremonies. I've been to Burning Man three times. I've done Buddhist meditation, Hindu festivals. Like I've done, I've done the thing. I think I counted something like 30 or 35 different specific new age, practices, embodiment, stuff like that for, for years. And, um, there's a lot of different aspects to the story, but I guess the thing that really sticks out for me is, is I never really cared that much about belonging. I just was looking for answers. And so I I kept asking questions like, well, what about, what about evil? Like people who do bad things because they're bad. Like there are those people do exist. We don't want to acknowledge it. And, and most of us will never meet somebody like that. I pray to God that that's the case. But those people do exist. It's pretty undeniable. What do you say about them? Oh, it's just karma. Like, are you going to say to a sex traffic child, like, sorry, kid, that's your karma? Like, would you look a kid in the eye and say that? Would you look, for example, Jeffrey Epstein in the eye and, and say like, oh, that's just his karma to be that? So, you know, the new age world talks about and is based on Hinduism, which is all, all is one. God is in everything. It's like God is in pardon the expression, pig feces? Like, that doesn't seem right to me, right? And so there are all these questions that the New Age would get really uncomfortable, love and light sort of talking about. And I was like, oh, that, that really bothers me because it doesn't actually map with reality. And so um, in, in 2015, I actually found my way into a Christian ministry, Christian ministry camp at Burning Man, of all places. And um, they didn't advertise that they were Christian, but they did healing, uh, sort of healing work, uh, Christian healing work under different kind of names because at Burning Man, you know, you wouldn't just be able to put up a cross and, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be well accepted in your neighborhood. Let's put it that way. But of course I found my way into that camp and they completely changed my perceptions of what Christians and Christianity was. And, um, and, uh, I ended up staying in touch with them while I traveled and, and I asked them to baptize me about four years, four or five years after I, after I met them, it was in January, 2020, um, because I had, was so totally dissatisfied with the new age world and its incapacity to be intellectually honest about so many different things. And yeah. And so, and so I, um, I didn't actually know fully what I was signing up for in terms of Christianity. I just knew that I felt this call. And after getting baptized in September, 2020 Labor Day weekend, I've experienced the real truth of sanctification and regeneration, just how true it is. You know, that the teaching will take from you the heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh and to see the Gospels open up their deep meaning and to be able to read the Bible and see it in three dimensions rather than just like flat words on a page and to see this grand epic trans-historical story of fall and and redemption is, is just – it's been this completely transformative process from the inside out. And I've discovered in that process that, process that there are so many people now that are leaving the New Age for Christ. And it's a, it is a thing and it's been happening mm-hmm. for a number of years, but it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have a lot of those people following me. They ask me questions, 
you know, on Instagram and, and, um, and I can, you know, when people follow me, sometimes I'll go look at their profiles and I can tell like, well, I'm pretty open about being Christian. Why does this person talking about astrology? Like, why are they following me? I think it's because they have questions. So I decided to put together an evening seminar on February 27th, Monday, February 27th at 5 PM Pacific. It'll be on zoom where I'm going to do a presentation about what the new age really is, where it came from, which I think a lot of people don't actually know, like some yeah, of the Yeah, Anthony Le- Anton LeVay and Helena Velovsky and the Levesque. whole nine. Yeah. Yeah, Annie yeah. Besant and and Swedenborg yeah. and yeah, all yeah. these all these people, Benjamin Cream, like all these names that we don't know. We know Wayne Dyer and Eckhart Tolle and stuff like that. But it's like, you know, there, there are some very and, and I don't know if you heard about Wilhelm Reich, like people would often say in the new age, like Wilhelm Reich taught all these, you know, things about sexuality, you know, that, that we're all we're all oppressed by our sexuality. It's like when you actually read what Wilhelm Reich was doing, he was a communist who was mm-hmm. trying and this is his own writing. He was trying mm-hmm. to bring about a communist revolution through smashing sexual morality, which is, yep. you know, which has been going on for a while. So I'm going to surface all that stuff. And then what I hope to do is paint a picture of what Christianity actually teaches in response to the new age, because the new age is, a, it's not actually new. It's an adaptation for, of, of ancient occult principles yep. in this yep. new consumerist, you know, happy, friendly, fuzzy kind of way. Um, and all, it's also very consumerist. And I, I hope to paint the picture of what Christianity is in response. And then at the end of the presentation, I'm going to be available to answer questions in a Christian apologetic sense for as long as people want to ask. So if it takes five hours, it takes five hours because I, I find that uh, there are a lot of people in the Christian church who are very well-meaning, but who only really know about the new age, you know, and this is this is a credit to them from the outside. But I've been in it and I've done the practices and I've gone to the very bottom you know, I've gone to the very bottom of the, let's say, pit, and I and I came back up. God called me back up, and so now I think I have a responsibility to mm-hmm. share what I know, and so that's my intention for hosting the seminar is to, is to is to share what I've learned about the new age and to be able to answer questions about what I've learned about Christianity, and the hope that people can sort of see the things that I share as a bridge to take that leap of faith. Yes, and um, I. I share so much of everything that you just said from experience to journey. And uh, th- that's kind of been my mission. And it's, it's funny because for a long time, I tiptoed around even talking about Jesus because I was pretty big in the new age world. <laughs> I mean, like even right down to this podcast being kind of like this, you know, in 36 countries and all this and that. And, you know, I was doing the workshops and all the things, all the things. I mean, I had a I was... quarterly numerologist, a quarterly astrologist and was wow. big up in it. And so for me, when I first had my very sudden, um, like realization that I was about to be bound to the pit of hell. Um, Mm. I flipped the switch and then I woke up the next morning, tossed everything out and I'm like, uh, okay, so how do I show up now? You know, and I was like (laughs) afraid to even mention the name of Jesus. And I started to really do my own self-exploration. And now, um, I am not afraid to, I'm not afraid to speak that name off my tongue. I do it whenever possible. I feel, I feel utterly called to carry the cross. I feel utterly called to, um, to speak that truth. And, and I have seen the many ways in which I was, I, these toxic relationships that led me further and further and further down into the new age, um, deception and, 
uh, you know, the ways in which I was constantly seeking and silent retreats and all of the various yeah. things that I was doing to try to heal myself. And, and then turns out, you know, there's only one, one book I need. And, yeah. and I think that that's so powerful. And, and, um, you know, it's interesting to see as I'm less and less afraid how, more and more people are coming forward. And I have a lot of Christians, even when I post stuff about former new age things that will say, well, are you saying that rocks are bad? I mean, God put <laughs> crystals on the earth and I'm saying, oh no, no, I don't think they're bad. I think that the way I was using them was very bad, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, um, I see it from both sides. And what's really interesting is a lot of the people that were really close to me in the new age world, just straight up left, right. They were like, yeah, no, you're a Bible thumper now, uh, yeah. but not all of them. And what's funny is when they hit my stories and stuff, I kind of have this moment where I'm like, at first when I was leaving the new age and coming to Christ and it, you know, I was like, oh, you know, these are demons. They're coming at me. They're trying to, you know, and now I see it that maybe they're seeking Christ. And now I know that, you know, my armor is so thick and yeah. so divine that I don't have to worry about that. But um, yeah, I'm actually going on a podcast in two weeks called Bible Mysteries. And I, he's, it's one of the, one of the podcasts. I listened to that pulled me kind of out of the new age, ironically, um, because of the way he talks about all sorts of cool stuff like the Nephilim and uh, et cetera. And it's going to be the first time that I am actually sharing my full testimony. And mm. uh, yeah, guided by this pastor who I've listened to from my car for years, and I'm really excited about it. And he and I um, had a conversation uh, via the phone the other day to kind of prep for this podcast. And it just felt so amazing. So amazing. And so like just the most apropos timing and I'm really excited for it. I'm excited for you. Will you send, when that's live, will you send that to me? I'd love to listen to that. Yeah, I definitely will. I definitely will. And uh, I feel like what's interesting is that I really do feel like God presented the proper um, place for me to share that story. Yeah. And, and that feels really good um, because I've, I've shared tidbits on this podcast, but I need to be held safely to have that conversation. And I know that Pastor Scott is going to be able to do that. So this feels really good. That's great. Yeah, I've been very, I've been fortunate to give my testimony on two or three different podcasts, um, including my own. And, um, and it's so healing for people to hear. And it's, I think it's healing to share because when I realized um, just how far out I had traveled, it sounds a lot like you you know, and I was like, wow, I got called all the way back from the very, very edge. And, and I can look I, at, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I, you, you say the edge and I know, and I literally feel what you're saying. I, yeah. I literally feel what you're saying. So I'm so proud of you to have <laughs> um, been saved in that way. And, and also to be doing what you're doing. It's scary. It is scary yeah. to go out there and start speaking that truth and not um, it, because it's, it's not how people had known you. Well, I, I, I'm fortunate, I guess, in a sense um, that when I left San Francisco in 2016 to travel and returned you know, to the United States four years later, uh, I left essentially that entire life behind. And I knew that going in. So I've been fortunate you know, moving to Phoenix, Arizona and sort of restarting my life that all the people who knew me before, they don't really know me so much anymore. So it was easier than it would have been. Um, but there have been other consequences with friends, unfortunately, some with family, 
particularly with family when they found out I was Christian, that they were very not happy about it. So, you know, so I have experienced plenty of cost as a result of that. But, you know, honestly, like, you know, like the gospel calls us all. And I'll give you a good example. I go to Apologia Church here in Phoenix, Arizona. It's a, it's a, you know, relatively, um, I don't want to say famous, but some famous, notorious, well-known somewhere in there church. Um, and we do a lot of evangelism. And one of the, the primary forms of evangelism my church does is at abortion mills across the city. But yesterday there was a team of us that went out to the Super Bowl. So we were, um, we were a couple blocks away from the Super Bowl, handing out tracts and, and hoping to engage people. Mostly people were on their way towards the game, so they didn't really stop to talk. But here I am after having spent all my years in the new age having, you know, I was a you know nightclub DJ and festivals and stuff like that. And, you know, Hindu festivals and Buddhist meditation retreats after all the stuff that I've done here, I am on a street corner preaching the gospel and handing out tracts. And there are moments where I was like, who am I? Yeah. And, right. It's like, is this, is, I, I've become the guy that I warned myself about, but, and, <laughs> but, you know, but to see that, but to be able to reach out to people and offer this to people, like the gospel call has to go out to as many people as possible. And I could see some people like Christ said it, I will make you fishers of men. It's like fishing. It's like, it's, it's like, funny. People, go ahead. Luke chapter five was a service on, on yesterday. And <laughs> as you're talking, I'm thinking about Peter. And that's just hilarious how that plays out. But yeah, continue. Yeah, no. So like just handing out these tracks and, and, you know, and saying to people like probably thousands of people, you know, uh, repent and follow the gospel. Christ calls us to new life with him. I just would say that over and over again with a tract in my hand, like a little brochure and to see some people kind of like nibble on the end of the um on the end of the on the end of the hook and then swim away and some people like actually come up and engage and to see and most people ignore completely it's just it's absolutely wild to see that but the gospel call has to go out in the hopes that you know uh, uh, such were some of you as paul says in romans and and indeed such was me uh, so so was i right <laughs> And so, and so, speaking the name of Christ and 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 telling a story and giving our and giving our testimony helps open the door for people who think, oh, that could never be me, or I'm too far gone, or my sins are too great, or I'm afraid, or you know, or or God is some patriarchal oppressor. It's like, no, none of those things, none of those things are true. That's all. That's all propaganda. It's all propaganda. And, and so, those people that took a nibble, right? That's you at Burning Man. You know what I mean? That that. Yeah. Is- that is that exact story that you just shared in the reverse. And I think that is so amazing. And, and one of the things that I was really scared about with this podcast is, gosh, you know, I switch it up and I start having these conversations and what's going to happen. And, and I just said, no, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not, I fear only one now and that's God. Yeah. <laughs> and so if I'm living that way, um, then I'm afraid not to speak, not afraid to speak, you know, that's right. And so that feels really good. And, um, you know, what's interesting too, is I have found, um, and I know to be true of my own experience that now if you are that withdrawn from Christ, right? Like if you are that you ignore or you start lashing out, that's a demon within you. That is not you. That is not that person. And I've spent many years doing that myself. So I, I know, and I can have some empathy for that, you know? Absolutely. And and people who do a lot of new age practices, they do end up, you know, they, they do open the doorways for demons. That That's that's part of it. You don't necessarily know that. But, you know, for example, uh, one of the really popular things in the new age is 
Eastern style meditation where you're just supposed to empty your mind and, you know, just, just, just let emptiness flow in. Well, that's a, if you're not guarded about your own inner energetic state, that's a real good way for other things, especially if you're not sealed in the blood of Christ for things to come in and you can begin doing all these different practices that invite so much into you without even, without even knowing, especially like in ayahuasca ceremonies or other, other medicine kind of ceremonies. If you're not, if you're not spiritually protected and you know uh, lucifer son of the morning right like a, they come as angels of light if you don't have your discernment up and, and all these different things it's specifically to contaminate people's inner inner space and it sounds i know it sounds really extreme to say these are demons or whatever but look i, I really i really as uncomfortable as it is to say that really is true it really, really is true. It is that it is that clear. And um and when and when you really get that, when I really got that, and that's the thing that really struck me, and it's why I share my testimony now is like I don't know that I I was I was right up to the edge. But I don't know that I was ever far gone because I was always skeptical about things that I was seeing and I I never lost myself and I never really wanted to belong. I just wanted answers. But I mean, all the things that I that were presented to me, I did. And I've been very fortunate to have a lot cleansed out of me in the process over the past couple of years. Um, but, uh, you know, and praise God for that. So I don't know what I brought along, but there was a lot. You talk about that cleansing. And this is something that I'm, I hinted at the podcast with Chris last week. It's something that I'm going to be talking about my testimony with, with um, Bible mysteries, because um, my experience with that has been very physical, um, which is, you know, I think it's probably similar to what you're talking about. And one of the things that I share with Scott in our pre-call is that, you know, I did not do ayahuasca. I did not do DBT. I did not do some of these things that I think where I was, had I done that. And that was where I remained a little skeptical because I'm the kind of person who like had my kid without even a Tylenol. (laughs) I think that truly saved me from going over. I think that was like the one thing. And we're going to, we're going to touch on that and talk about that a little bit because I really do feel that way. I mean, I think that that would have been the the pushover for me. Ayahuasca would have been. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, it be, is. But like you, I was seeking not to belong, but answers. And, and that was the one place for me that I'm like, mm, that's just not who I am. Right. That was the way I held, uh, I held to my sovereignty and myself. Because mm. I've never been a, I've I've never done any drugs. I've I've, I've smoked marijuana. I can count on my hands. But, mm. but you know, alcohol. Yes, the spirits, which is ironic and all that. But you know, that was the one place that I held on to me, and I think that's the only reason I didn't go over. I'm grateful to hear that because ayahuasca, yeah. psychedelics, and drugs are they're they're very powerful at dissolving dissolving boundaries, and I think that's what they're designed to do is for 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 men and women they're supposed to dissolve any boundaries between you like it's all one right we're all one and so the only notion that you know anything is separate is because of this veil of consciousness and when you transcend your veil of consciousness you will realize the eternal oneness and you'll be god right that's that's the new age kind of message it's called oneism um now you take these drugs and do these practices to dissolve your separate conscience consciousness Right, so that you can just experience that oneness and heal and all that stuff. And in some sense, like you can, in the same way that psychotherapy 
can be good for dropping the barriers between you and say traumatic experiences and memories that need to be encountered and released. There's a way in which we build up these barriers that actually need to come down. But when we begin dissolving the barrier of our separate self from reality, we, we kind of let all the water run out of the bag and we don't really know who we are anymore and we lose any sense of any sense of containment. And ayahuasca and all the different medicines are very, very powerful boundary dissolving substances. And, and that's, I think, what they're ultimately designed to do. And that's, I think, the long game that I think is being played by the demons behind all of this, that they say, well, if you participate in this, you know, you'll have all this inner healing and transformation. And yes, the capitalistic, materialistic medicine system is broken and food, all that stuff is true. And what they hook you with is notions of inner healing and transformation from this from this broken, fallen like system. But what you don't recognize is that there's this entire ideology that's being tacked on as a of the caboose, where it's like, oh, all this stuff sounds great. I'm healing. I'm transforming. I'm becoming so much lighter and freer. And all things are one. And where there's no such thing as a separate self. And and it, it's and Christianity is bad. And so that's the thing is is the the game these demons are playing is not to say up front like, hey, let's go straight at the truth. It's let's hook you with all the all these goodies so that you never question what kind of comes along with it. And that's what's going on in that world. Now, that doesn't mean to say that everyone in that world is not sincere. The people in that world, at least that I've experienced, are very sincere about about wanting to help people. They just don't recognize the the power and the impact of their technologies and, and like a healing technologies, quote unquote, and that they're being used. And so uh, to go back to the seminar, like what I want to show is that the people who started the new age, they knew exactly what they were doing. Like it's not, it, it wasn't like, oh, this is an accident. Like whether that knowledge was carried over to someone like a Wayne Dyer, for example, whether he knows, who knows, but the, the Blavatsky's and the Annie Besant's and the Swedenborg's and all these guys, they knew what they were doing. And so we are the inheritors of this attempt to smash any notion of separate, independent truth, right, of boundaries between people, boundaries at all, to form this one mushy kind of mass. And you see that now to bring the conversation back to where we started between men and women. What is a man? What is a woman? Who knows? We can be anybody. Anyone is everything. And there is no created order. And so you see how in one of the stories that I posted on Instagram – that you know you can look at our public dialogue now sorry i've got i've got no there, you're good. there are hot rod cars that live in my neighborhood and they just blaze by during the day but um but um you know there's this rope with these three strands and the three strands are sexual liberation feminism and the new age and these three strands are tightly interwoven and they form this rope that binds our dialogue and so uh and so you'll you'll hear during this conversation that you know, what I try to do in my content in many ways is saw away at these various three strands because when one of them snaps, the other two become much weaker. And so everything that I'm trying to do in addition to building up men is to saw off pieces of this dialogue, of this of this rope that binds us. And the new age is one of the easiest ones to saw away, but the only way that you can do that is with Christianity. So hopefully, hopefully all that fits together. I love it. And I love how we tied it back together. This was an awesome and fascinating conversation. And I 
I'm so grateful that you took the time out to come on. Looking forward to launching this out to the world and your seminar. Hopefully, I'll be able to attend that myself. And um, I can see us having many more conversations as the world continues to devolve. <laughs> I would I would love that. I would love that. Uh, thank you so much, Will, for coming on. And where can people like quickly and easily get a hold of you? What's the best way? The best way to find everything that we've talked about is to go to my link trees, link, uh, link tree slash rent of men. From there, you can find the New Age Seminar, which is also at rentofmen.com slash exit. Um, but from Linktree, Rent of Men, you can find my podcast, content creation, other podcasts I've been on. Everything is in my mentorship. It's all linked there. I love that so much. And as always, listeners, we include everything in the show notes. So make sure you click that, click subscribe, all the fun things. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Michaela. This has been great. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a BU Find Happy podcast. For more inspiration, check out the links.